This is Radically Alive Women's Edgecast. It's like the whole point of life is to be here and to be in the world and show up to it. And and like I said, if you feel the grief and you don't let it go through, then things get stuck. Life stops happening. Hello, Kiri. Hello, Yulia. I've witnessed some shifts in you in the last few months or half year, and it seems like there's more of you coming through. It's like you're making space for that to come through that really wants to come through. It's shedding these layers of beliefs who you should be in the world or who you could be to be cool. And then there's this other part emerging that you might not know the shape and form of yet, and I'm curious about an aspect of that that seems to be coming through you, which is your interest in death. What interests you in death ritual and grief work and whatever that part is that is turning you on? Will you tell me what turns you on in that wide realm of death? When people are grieving, they're very close to themselves. They're very close to what really matters to them. The first time I had someone close to me who died, and it was a really tragic death. Yeah, you know, she killed herself and she killed her son. And it's like I looked out at the world and I could see so much of modern culture is based on denying or avoiding or like trying to run away from the reality that death is like right here, like right here. I know a teenager who died of a brain aneurysm at school. Bang. No notice. No idea that that was going to happen. Just gone. And that reality is, you know, it can be frightening, but it's also liberating somehow and galvanizing because death makes life precious. It's precious because it's finite. It's precious because it's going to end. And it's mysterious because you never know when that moment is going to come. And it's scary and most people just numb it out or just pretend that it's not there. But bringing death closer, in my experience, really enriches life. It's like it matters. It's that moment in, um, I don't agree with the way that he did it, but that moment in Fight Club when he's like pointing the gun at the store clerk and like, what did you want to do with your life? Did you want to work at the Quickie Mart or whatever? Or did you have some other dream? Like, go and do it. If you're going to die tomorrow, what would you do? How would you live today? What would you regret? And I noticed that there's people who are terminally ill, people who are in this situation where they know that they're going to die soon. It so it so radically shifts their relationship to their self and their outlook. My cousin had cancer and she had like a slim chance of survival. I think it was like 20 or 30% or something. She had a chance of dying in the next year and she recovered. She got through. But in that year, she took her family traveling. She doubled down on her art and her creative processes she went from being a psychiatrist full-time to almost being a full-time artist now. It's an initiation and it clarifies 
there's something real about death that cuts through a lot of bullshit. If you were going to die tomorrow, what are the things that you are here to do? What is something you don't want to be regretting? If I really just had 24 hours, I'd just ring people up and tell them that I love them. Why? Well, I had this experience last week. I went to the death cafe. And before I went to the death cafe, I had lunch with my mother. My mother knew that I had to be in Coburg at two o'clock. And so we're getting to the end of lunch and she got a bit frantic on my behalf. Like, oh, you have to go. And I was like, you know what? I can be late. I chose to be late. I don't want to rush this moment with you. She'd just been on holidays. I hadn't seen her for four weeks. And so I'm just like, no, I'm going to go slow. I'm going to drive you home. And, you know, I gave her a big hug and I said, I love you. And I sent a message to the Death Cafe people saying, you know, I'll be 15 minutes late. And when I got there, it was fine. And the first thing they did was this guided meditation on like, you know, what if you're going to die in 10 years? What if you're going to die in one year? What if you're going to die? What if you were dead right now? And I cried. I cried because I was just so grateful that, you know, if I was dead at that moment, the last thing I did was be like, no, I'm not going to hurry. The memory of that hug with my mom. And I said, I love you. That would be my last moment. The last person I know who saw me was my mother. And the last thing I did was hug her and say, I love you. And I just, yeah, I was just so grateful for that moment. I'm like, yeah, that is a story that she could tell that everyone will feel good about. There's an element yeah. of making peace or making mints or an element of enjoying or appreciating each moment. It seems to matter to you. What is that? I mean, it's just being love in action. And isn't that the point? Isn't that like the most that I could do? <laughs> in a way, within this body, with this time, to be love in the world. Is there anything more than that, really? And not in a fluffy, fake way, like genuine. There are so many things that demand that we cut off parts of ourself or numb parts of ourself or parts of our experience. And being love in action is being present to the whole, the fullness of a person and their experience. There was a woman in the death cafe whose mother died when she was a baby. Her mother was murdered. Her mother was murdered by her father, I think. And we spoke about this double kind of grief that happens because when someone dies in that tragic, violent way, people are so shocked by that. And it's like they can't hear it or they get stuck on that, the horror of the way that person died and they're not able to then be with the person. So this woman, I'll call her Susie, that's not her name, but it was powerful to be able to sit there and be like, yes, that is how your mother died. That is what happened in your life and you are a person here who is grieving your mother and your mother had a whole life. You know, she had friends and connections and she did things that are all more important than how she died. And how she died doesn't take away from the, whole, the fullness of the person that she was. 
And yeah, so I can be love in action by hearing that person's story in the way that they want to tell it instead of in the way that I want to hear it. And instead of me getting fixated on, but how exactly did she die? And how exactly did he kill her? And where were you when she died? And oh my God, you know, what? where is he now? Is he in jail? That's all my anxiety. That's not about her. That's not what she needs to say. That's not what she needs to talk about. And it's this irony, right? Because modern culture and news and everything is so obsessed with these horrific, dramatic events. But when you're actually faced with someone who that's their lived reality, everyone's just like, oh, my God, I don't know what to say to you. Oh, my God, that's so awful. How could you? How could you live? So I get two elements there. Like One is that the aspect of grief. You seem to know something about the importance of grief. And the other is the storytelling in the process of grief. I invite you to pick one that calls out to you first. Grief is love. Our capacity for grief defines our capacity for love. I know this and I'm still so quick to stop it. Grief needs to flow like love needs to flow. So if I hold it back, I'm holding back my capacity to love. And I can really see it in people that if they're holding grief that hasn't been expressed, then their hearts are a little bit closed. Their heart is closed. And when people are triggered, it's often there's some kind of grief under that. Like where they're being triggered is like the situation now is resonating with that grief that is unreleased inside me. And I don't want to let that grief out, so I'm going to keep it closed. It lands in me and something relaxes in me. And an aha that I get is that you're actually not a death walker or something like that. You're like a grief walker. And grief happens not only in death, in physical death. Relationships die. Old versions of myself or yourself die. An identity dying. There's so many moments in life where things change unexpectedly or we choose them to change, which might still be unexpected for ourselves even. These are all moments for grief and you have a capacity to see that and to actually see the blocked grief in people's hearts. Yeah, I'm a grief plumber. Grief plumber, right. That's your title. That's the title that I'm wearing as I go out into the world with this work around death and grief and loss. All grief is grief, whether it's grief because someone died, whether it's grief because something got lost. And the pattern that you create around the smallest grief is the same pattern that you will follow in the massive grief. It's all the same. There's one pipe there. If you block that pipe over something little, then when the big grief comes through, it will get stuck in just the same way. You use just the same patterns to stop it. But that also contains the possibility that if you do grief well, if you practice on the little things, if you take it seriously, you'll learn. You'll learn how to do it so that when something big happens, you're like, oh, yeah, this is how it goes. This is familiar. And it doesn't have to be so scary. I feel really glad to feel you here. I can sense your anger, clarity. You see it in your eyes. Your eyes are shining and they're like connected to something else. And I feel really glad about that. And I have a question around what is grief? What does it actually mean? And what does it maybe look like or not? What is it? 
in very real everyday terms. Someone said this quote the other day. I can't remember how it goes exactly, but it's something like grief is love whose object is no longer there, no longer exists. There's a love that was like going to a person, a place, a thing that you had a relationship with, and that thing is not there, not there in the same way that it was. And so the love is like, ooh, needs to shift, needs to change. I mean, you know, in grief, there's sadness, there's anger, there's fear, there's joy. All of the feelings show up in that space. Is it always that all of them show up in that space? Is it necessary to go through the whole grief cycle of process? What is your experience or what does your heart know about it rather than making it a method or something? Yeah, because my brain doesn't know. Yeah, and it depends on the person and the circumstances. And yes, they're all there. And if they're all there, then they all need to be expressed at some time or another. But the way they show up, the order they show up, and you know what shows up together or mixed or whatever, is so different as there are people. So as a grief plumber, you're really a love plumber. <laughs> I see also like a heart surgeon of some sort. There's <laughs> a certain fierceness in you about that that I notice. It's the passion for it. It's like the force of life in you grabbing this and like, this needs to be honored. This is sacred. There's yeah. so much opportunity that just gets lost. Like people who show up to a funeral and they all sit in their pews and they have the closed casket at the front of the room and everyone takes turns speaking and we're all being very good and polite and, oh, yes, we're all very sad. We might cry a little bit. But there's no, ah, it's stale. It's really stale and so limited. Like when I took over Dan's funeral last year, there was space to say all the things. There was space to say, there was space for people to say, I feel really angry at him because he did this to himself. And there's space to say like, I don't understand how this could happen to someone like him. Like I looked up to him. He was a leader in my life. How could he kill himself? And it wasn't a space for answers, but different people had different parts of a picture of him and could offer that. You know, I was his business partner and I had this experience of him and I've, I'd seen him in a depression before. And, you know, I'd seen him go to these dark places. And I don't know what happened for him right now. And it was incredible, actually. There was a kind of collective wisdom or something that emerged for the people that were there this reweaving of a community like we were all people who loved Dan and loved who he was in the world and we get to keep that and we get to keep doing the work that he did and we get to keep loving him and keep loving his work in this world and we get to keep doing that like he's gone and yeah he killed himself so he's gone in a fucking awful way but the love gets to continue and that's the magic that can happen in ceremony and community ritual that people turn toward the pain and find a way through for the love to keep flowing and why 
might seem like a stupid question, but why is it important to you that the love keeps flowing? Oh my God, Julia, this yeah. is everything. It's like it's the whole point of life is to be here and to be in the world and show up to it. And and like I said, if you feel the grief and you don't let it go through, then things get stuck. Life stops happening. You know, I've told you before the story about Logan and his houseplant. Logan had a houseplant that he loved and he was sitting out on the balcony at his house, this Monstera. And he was loving every leaf that came out of his plant and giving each leaf a different name and like sharing it with his friends. And everyone was like coming up with names for the leaves of this plant. It was a really cold night and it got frost damage. And so a whole lot of the leaves died and he pulled it inside and wrapped it in a doona. And then it just sat there for, I don't know, a couple of weeks, maybe a month. He didn't know what to do with it. You know, he'd had this plant, he'd poured so much love and attention into it, and now it's half dead. And he feels bad that it's half dead, and he feels really sad about it, and he feels kind of stupid because he put so much effort into all the leaves and everything, and, and it's just sitting there. And I was over at his house, and he's just like, get up in the morning or something. He's just looking at the plant with all of this shame and rage. And I was like, if you keep looking at the plant like that, you're going to kill it. <laughs> And he was upset. He was really upset. I was being flippant about it because I didn't realize it wasn't a kind moment on my part. But, you know, there was something there. And, you know, a bit later I could see he was really sad. And then I was just like, okay, I'm going to change tack. I'm going to take this really seriously. And so I just said, like, you're really sad about the plant. And then it started to come out. And this is the story, right? Like him being able to give voice to his experience is part of what allows that plumbing to unblock itself. Because if you can say what is in the block, if you can speak what that block is, whether it's shame or embarrassment or whatever, then that then it starts to come to dissolve. Also, um, like a difference in it being held in. And then the shame and these stories that are destructive, they're then in the space between him and the plant. And then there is no energy flow other than this withholding or maybe that sucking energy thing. And so when you say bring love into flow through grief is unblocking that and composting the shame part and tearing it apart and finding the love bits in there. And then that love flows, the energy flow happens also between then the human and the plant. This is exactly what I was saying. Like these levels, like the grief for a plant, it's the same pattern as for a person. It, love is love. It doesn't matter what it is that you love. So, yeah, I ended up holding a funeral for the plant. I mean, it wasn't a funeral because the plant came back to life. It's flourishing now. It's beautiful. But I held space for Logan to reconnect with the plant and ask the plant, what is it that you need from me? And to prune it and to consider, like, where do you want to put these leaves now that you've cut them off? Do they go into the compost? Do they go into the garden? And just, like, keep giving him the choices. And this is how I hold funerals as well. Just keep asking the person, like, what is it that you need? There's a funeral I did earlier this year where she didn't have the body of her loved one. You know, he died four years before. But it's like, okay, so there would be a body here. Is there something that can stand in for that? Is there a symbol that can be that for you? 
just putting symbols in place of the things is a really powerful way to give you an object so you can see what's happening and you can work with those symbols in order to work with the parts of yourself, to work with what's going on inside yourself. Grief makes things real. It brings it back into reality. And when I hear grief is directly linked to the capacity to love, and to love it seems to be, from what I hear you say, is directly linked to the capacity to live, to life, for life. And the storytelling has something to do with that because depending on which stories I tell myself, I bring life into flow and love into flow or I block it as I do that and blocking my feelings there with the stories that I have. Like, oh, I, I shouldn't be sad. I should be over it now. Yeah. Or oh, this is just a plant or blah, or blah, blah, like, blah. Oh, I'm, I'm just in low drama right now. I'm just telling a victim story. That makes me furious. When I hear people say that, I'm just like, I don't fucking care if it's a victim story. Mm-hmm. If that's the story that's there, you need to own it. <laughs> be in it until it moves on. I'm also reminded from what you shared about that relationship from the human to the plant and life is what we spoke about yesterday night with the making space in myself frees up. Like Then the other person can go there too. What do you do there? When you hold space for grief, what do you do inside yourself? Well, this is the other part of grief plumber. Because, you know, plum has that beautiful connotation of like plumbing the depths, of like diving deep. And my relationship to my grief and my capacity to grieve and to be with that in myself is fundamental to my capacity to hold space for others. And there's often, yeah, there's lots of water analogies, like plumbing and flow and oceans, like this sense of there's a beautiful video that Arilyn created with some people. One of the people in that video talks about this sense of if you fight the ocean, (laughs) you just cause suffering for yourself. But if you like relax into the waves that you can learn to kind of move with those waves rather than feeling overwhelmed by them. And there's a sense in which as a space holder, it's like you have to have that capacity to lean back into that ocean and to, to meet the ocean in the other person. And you're kind of allowing your, your waters to meet until they something about calmness and something about also holding a larger space so that their individual experience can like rest in that broader ocean. It's hard to make words, but this, yeah, this notion of different oceans meeting is like being aware of my own ocean and what sets it to storms and what brings calmness it's not it's not trying to enforce calm on the other person but this sense of like if i am at ease within myself and within i'm at ease with the whole process of grief and all of the feelings that come with it then i can just be like yes to whatever they're saying whatever's going on to them and being that yes kind of eases the fight in other people because that's what causes the suffering and they're fighting grief and they're fighting whatever's going on in them. 
my brain has these images of the way, you know, like if you have a cup of water and you set it to motion, but then you put something still in the water, it will, the water will become still. And it's really important that that process is not about smoothing it out. It's about allowing the, allowing the stillness to come because it comes like grief comes in waves, always, always in waves. And so there'll always be, if you don't resist it, it will come to stillness. There'll always be a moment of rest. And it's funny, like when I, I guess in my own experiences of grief, it's like all the rules go out the window. You know, it's so much about surrender and it's not, it's not about doing it right or going through stages. It's just be with it as it is and trust like I would say to someone who's grieving, like at times you're going to numb out and that's okay. That's also part of the process because you can't feel this intensely 24 seven. It reminds me of also of the integration time and healing. Grief is also part of healing. It's healing the heart, healing, whatever. that, That integration time also where it might seem numb, but actually the body is like things are falling into place and, until the next wave comes, as you say. And it's this amazing thing, Julia, because it's by virtue of that thing that happened in my early 20s, that was, yeah, such a massive initiation that opened my eyes to, like, here's this thing that everyone's avoiding and no one wants to talk about, but it's everywhere and it's so important. And then from that point forward in my life, every time I met someone who was grieving, I'd be like, great, tell me about it. Tell me about your person. I want to hear. And I would, in my view, it's almost like this selfish kind of like, oh, yeah, I love hearing those stories. Tell me those stories. But I know from various friends that are still in my life from the those conversations that for them – that hunger that I had to hear their story was really liberating because a lot of other people in their life were being silent or scared or, you know, even saying to someone who'd lost their mother a year ago, like, oh, wow, that's really recent. And they were like, oh, thank you. Thank you because it still feels really recent one year. But there's this well, modern culture is kind of like, oh, you had your week off, you know, now you're back to work. (laughs) Now it's over. Ridiculousness. And just, I think just because people feel so uncomfortable with it, people feel so uncomfortable with it, they're just kind of like, oh, God, can you stop talking about that now? What is the discomfort? What is the discomfort? Is it that they don't want to feel that? Is it that they're scared of death or they're scared of loss? They're scared of their own grief? We're so obsessed with security and so obsessed with a love that will never die. Trying to like bottle the ocean and contain it and be like, it's okay. My ocean is safe here in this bottle and no one can take it away from me. You've not got the ocean anymore, have you? You've just got a bottle of fucking water. Thank you, Kiri. That's a perfect end note. (laughs) Thank you for listening and thank you for being in this circle. I'm really glad you're here. And if you want to support this Edgecast further, 
there are various ways in which you can do that. You could share with as many people as possible the episodes that are coming out once a week. You can donate to the building of Radically Alive Women's Heart Quarters, Raw HQ, at the southern end of Lake Topo, a compact recording and creation studio. And you can join live spaces to really transform your own reality, to make space for your own radical aliveness with higher levels of consciousness. You can find all the information for these offers on my website, julia-neumann.com. Hear and see you soon.